90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm in the back of a Suburban recording the podcast. <laughs> the things we do for podcasting. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yeah, I'm in the middle of camp, and it turns out there are students everywhere, and my fellow instructors are really loud. So this was the best thing I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually quite good. It's, it's kind of like a mobile recording booth. Um, I don't know why I haven't done this sooner. Well, other than all the strange looks that you are probably getting, you know, I think that's uh, yes. a good option. Maybe I'll have to go sit outside yeah. my car next time. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. I, I well, totally if, think Well, if you, you cover should. the windows with blankets, A, you don't get the funny looks, or at least you can't see them, and B, you get better acoustic qualities. So, like. Wait, is there someone on this call? <laughs> oh, hi. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Good friend Ben Edrington. You actually pronounced my last name perfectly, um, which is unusual. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very good. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> so, for those that aren't familiar, Ben is one of the co-hosts over at the Orbital Mechanics podcast, who we've done a couple of crossover episodes. Yeah. With. So, how's it going over there, Ben? Pretty good. Um, so, you guys are in a very, very different. Um, biome than me i'm in chico california which is um it smells like flowers there are flowers everywhere um we haven't had a day that went over 85 yet uh we didn't oh. have any snow we actually didn't have any no no snow this winter and i think we had like two nights that that froze this winter oh my so gosh. um so i'm i'm doing just fantastic thank you for asking I, I, I'm so glad that you're that far away because yeah, maybe my wither, my withering stairs and my 95 degree heat. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We'll we'll have triple digits for multiple weeks uh, later this summer, but we're not there yet. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, as you've been uh, helping promote on Twitter, we're walking out through the solar system talking about all the planets, and we were really stumped when it came to what to do about the planet Earth, because that's generally the discussion of the show, mm -hmm. and Shannon had the great idea <laughs> that we should get somebody that talks about the Earth from space to come on. Y yeah, except the, the thing is that we don't you. talk about the Earth from space. We talk about spacecraft, so... You you guys were very clever and you're like, okay, well, let's talk about Earth observation spacecraft. And so um, I went off and did a bunch of research just on space spaceships. So uh, I have little to no um, geo, like, like geoscience to add to this. So we'll see if this was a good idea or not. Well, we'll just we'll just add in the C episode blah blah number for you know whatever you're talking there about. You it's fine. There you go. <laughs> We've been talking about the Earth for a couple of years yeah. now. <laughs> but I guess I mean John wants to start off with why should we study the Earth? But I don't I don't know if you've got a good answer for that, do you? Who, <laughs> John or me? Because I definitely don't. I have no idea. You? That's a, yeah. That this is you. No, are our see, guest. planetary sciences are are. Um, they're, they're not boring to me, but like, I don't understand them. And so I stay very far away from them. Uh, and so I, I love listening to you guys talk about planetary science because you guys really care about it. 
Um, but after I finish listening to an episode, I just kind of look off into space and go, what the heck did I just listen to? <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> uh, ice is a mineral. What the heck are they talking about? <laughs> Thank you for that ice one, Ben. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. The, so, there well, there I, are I, very I, few things that I know about, uh, geology, but ice is a mineral and geophysicists have a lot of batteries. Like these are the basics and, and yes, I know them well. Those, that's, that's yeah. all you, that's all you need to know. I mean, I think, I, I think Jim Head last week on Venus told us why we should study earth quite well. Don't you think, John? So obviously we live here, which is a good reason to study it and understand it, but we can also apply it to things like, you know, exoplanets. Where could we find life elsewhere? So that, that's, that would be my answer to why we should study the Earth. And also, of course, like I said, to make sure that we can sustain ourselves here for at least a decent amount of time. <laughs> yeah, I, mine, uh, mine is all about process. That's, that's sort of what I do is process geology. And so, you know, processes you see here, and the more we observe them from different angles, both on the Earth and above the Earth, we can apply that to all the different planets like we talked about last week. Yeah, and so, Shannon, real quickly, since we've talked about this in many previous shows, but it, it's going on in our march out in the solar system, what do we know about the formation of the Earth? Well, I mean, you know, Earth formed in these rocky planets just like Mercury and Venus and Mars, right? Um, we're 4.6 billion years old. It was really scary here at first, right? I mean, really scary. Our first uh, geologic period is called the Hadean, which means hell-like, because that's what it was like here. Um, it took us a long time to cool down. We're still cooling down, aren't we? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so <laughs> what we talked about today at camp, actually, was exactly this. You know, how did stuff start? So we were really crunchy ball. We started cooling down from lava. We started to get water through comets and also through uh, volcanoes. They spewed out a bunch of water vapor and we got the oceans. And then we started to build what we look like today. So can I can I get you to rewind a little bit there? I actually have a question for you. Um, okay. And you're welcome to cut this out of the show if you want. <laughs> uh, so I was listening to this other podcast called Explore a Story, which is um, sponsored by uh, the Chicago Field Museum. Um, and oh, yeah. they mentioned um, that they had an exhibit that included um, um, a sample that had zircons, like 4.4 billion year old zircons right mm -hmm. um right and they said something about how the structure of this rock um included uh or, or necessitated the formation of it necessitated liquid water and that there that seemed to indicate that there was liquid water very early on in earth's history is that is that true and how the heck does that actually happen how did we get the water? Yes, that is true. Um, we talked a little bit. Well, we actually had a whole show on zircons. Um, so that mineral formation does need liquid water. But I mean, a lot of this stuff came from, you know, volcanoes and stuff. And early on, we had all this, uh, all these comets coming in. And so a lot of that was from the ice, but it's really from the volcanoes. And it's kind of neat time right now, because you think about these Hawaiian mm. volcanoes and you watch these videos and you see all this stuff spewing out. And so the main thing spewing out is actually water vapor. And when 
all of the earth looks like Hawaii looks like right now. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take too long. And I think we're just now realizing how short a time it actually does take for all that water vapor to start to condense. And then you've got rain and there you go. Wow. So you can have um, like a volcanic earth with liquid water. I, I thought I thought yeah. maybe that you had to go uh, into the earth's core and have high pressure before you could have liquid water. But we had liquid water on the surface. Really wow. early. Okay, that's so crazy. And so we know this because those zircons got like reworked, actually, and you can tell this. And so in order to have sedimentary rocks, so the types of rocks that are made from eroding other rocks, you have to have water because that's how they that's how they get broken mm -hmm. down. And so we have sedimentary rocks now really early. And so that had to mm. mean that we had a water cycle. Right. So I guess that that liquid water can be kind of uh, transitory, right? Like it can rain and then yes. pretty quickly get boiled off again. But as long as it's right, there absolutely. for that. Oh, okay. Yep. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And you, a yeah. lot of these mineral reactions do have to have water. Uh, that go, either goes into the structure or sometimes even just to help catalyze the reaction. But it's pretty common for mm -hmm. uh, mineral reactions and for water to help do things like modify melting points of, uh, mm. of various melted soups that are out there. Yeah. Okay. And this, was, this wasn't just a surprise to me, right? Like when we were first theorizing about earth formation, we didn't think that that was going to be the case, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. The whole timing of liquid water on on the surface of earth is has been debated and I think it was kind of shocking mm. that it was that early. Hmm. So yeah, that's, that's not just okay, surprising good. to you. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just in my, yeah, just in my, you know, 20 years of studying it, uh, the, the idea has changed by about a billion oh, years wow. when liquid water was around. Okay. Yeah. So that's a quarter of our whole cool. existence. Yeah. It's less than 50%. That's not bad. <laughs> 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 so the other thing that uh earth has that's pretty unique and that has also been a recent discovery even on the human time scale is plate tectonics right right and so i mean i had professors and i mean you did too john that didn't even learn plate tectonics mm -hmm. in school it was that early yeah and i mean there are tectonic things in the solar system but nothing works quite like earth that we know of yet Right. That we know of yet. I think uh, when we talked about Mercury and talked about tectonics there or not there, right, as such as they are, um, that was really interesting to me to think about because it's such a different way of moving plates around. And then as we get to the big gas giants and some of their moons, we'll talk about even weirder types of plate tectonics where you have like ice mantles and things like that. Yes, there's a lot of weird tectonic mechanisms out there that we'll get to. But Earth makes a lot of what goes on here possible, as well as the atmosphere, because Earth is one of the only planets that we're going to talk about, obviously, that has an atmosphere that is easily sustaining for our life. Right. Exactly. I guess somebody else would be talking about it if they were on another planet. But uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good tie-in, too, since the person who discovered plate tectonics or kind of came up with the theory was actually a meteorologist himself. It's true. And, you know, I will say, though, that Earth is not going to have anywhere close to the most interesting meteorology that we're going to talk about. <laughs> no, no, it really isn't. Even though ours is pretty good, I will say. but um, And it keeps many people employed. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so moving on to the, sort of the main 
point of this was let's talk about some spacecraft that we've used to study Earth and how we've got some of this information that if Earth were another planet that we were not living on, what kind of spacecraft would we send there to study it? Because we can't do boots on the ground geology just like we can't with any of the other planets we've talked about. And Ben, you came up with uh, with quite the list of spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I was um, doing some uh, some quick pre show uh, refreshers, and and I realized that the two spacecraft that I chose uh, have nothing to do with Earth science, really. I mean, they're they're very space. <laughs> oriented uh earth science spacecraft and i'm really sorry but not that sorry <laughs> do you just hate earth ben like you just go like, look out you can't look down or like <laughs> well so i mean like i i know that's a, a jokey question but like i i live in butte county where we have um two really amazing um and striking geological formations one are uh the uh, the Butte County Buttes, which um, include Table Mountain. And so they're these really crazy mountains that just don't have a top. Um, and we also have the um, the Sutter Buttes, um, which aren't true buttes, as I understand the term, but they're actually um, the remaining uh, uh, caldera of a number of volcanoes. Um, and the rest of the volcano yeah. eroded away. Um, and so like that really fascinates me. And like, we have a lot of volcanic rock that, you know, was basically thrown over here from different volcanoes. So like, I don't hate geology, I swear. <laughs> but when I, when I start thinking about spacecraft, the ones that really catch my eye are not the ones that, uh, look in, you know, look down at the earth so much. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll still be talking to you. <laughs> you guys knew what you were getting into when you invited me on this show. We sure did. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I mean, what did you pick, Ben? What's um, okay. What's one of your yeah? So my my first one is actually the more the the one that's slightly more applicable. Uh, it's Discover, and I'm gonna look up what Discover uh, stands for because I will get it wrong if I try to say it without looking it up. It is the deep space climate. Well, I was gonna, observatory. I was gonna do that after, like after my little. <laughs> you have to remember that I am relying heavily on the edit here, Shannon. <laughs> we don't do. We just go, man. We there's no editing here. Oh boy. Here. Okay. <laughs> this is a high pressure. I can't. Situation I can't for take you. it. All right. So. So discover is spelled D-S-C-O-V-R. There's one vowel in there and it stands for Deep Space Climate Observatory. And um, I, I really love discover um, because it sends back really pretty photos of the earth. And that's really what I care about is whether the photos look good or not. Um, <laughs> but the way it's able to do that, um, it was it was launched in 2015 and it wasn't launched to low earth orbit, unlike a lot of... Uh, you know, earth science spacecraft, which is what we're supposed to be talking about. But, um, <laughs> it was sent to the L one Lagrange point, which is, uh, between the earth and the sun. And it's, uh, I'm sure that your listeners know what the Lagrange points are, but th this point is really fascinating because, um, we normally think about it as 
being the neutral gravity point between the earth and the sun. But if it was just that, uh, you, anything that you put there would go faster than the earth in its orbit and the earth would lag behind whatever you put there. So the L1 Lagrange point also, um, it is a special point that balances the centri- the centripetal force, the centripetal motion. I don't know what's real, um, but it, it balances the <laughs> centrifugal force um, as it's being whipped around slower around the sun than it should. Right, the the Earth is able to pull it backwards, um, and so that it, it's not orbiting the way it should. Uh, and that that's fascinating. But anyway, um, so Discover took 100 days to get out to this point. That's how far away it is. Um, and Discover is um, primarily intended um, to work with another spacecraft called ACE, the Advanced Composition Explorer. And ACE is on its way out, but right now they're working in tandem. And they're just there to... Uh, look at the solar wind as it comes in and give us warnings. So I guess you could say that this telescope or this, this spacecraft is protecting all the other spacecraft you guys are going to talk about. So really, <laughs> really, this is a good spacecraft. Um, so, so it has three <laughs> instruments on board. Um, one is a Faraday cup, which basically is a metal cup that faces the sun and as positive ions hit it, it gives off, um, a, a, it, it basically charges the cup and then that gets discharged into electronics that can literally count every positive ion that hits it. It's got a magnetometer, um, which are really fun to play with. I actually have one sitting around my makerspace right now, um, that looks at the, uh, the magnetic fields. And that also has an electrostatic analyzer, um, which is a really fancy word for basically a lens for electrons or not, not a lens, but like a filter for electrons. Uh, only electrons can get past the electrostatic analyzer. And so then they can hit something else and charge it and you can count electrons. Um, but so the, the earth science part, um, is the most, uh, public facing part of the spacecraft. Um, it's called the earth polychromatic imaging camera and it's, kind of an extra experiment, right? Ace doesn't have an earth facing camera, but this is a camera that just faces earth and just takes photos. And the photos that they take, um, are used for a lot of science. Um, they can look at cloud cover. Um, I believe they actually look at soil moisture levels using this camera, which is pretty crazy. Cause that's, you know, not exactly the, the best way to do it, but they can do it. Um, and then I think my favorite thing is that um, the Earth polychromatic imaging camera also accidentally takes photos of the moon every once in a while. Um, when the moon is eclipsing the Earth or close to eclipsing the Earth, it happens to get in the way and we get to see the far side of the moon. And uh, NASA releases photos from this camera at almost real time. Uh, so you can see, you know, wherever on earth is noon because it's, you know, towards the sun. Uh, and then when there's a, a moon pass, you can see the moon flying past it. If you're watching the data coming in, you can watch the moon, uh, transit the face of the earth. It's really cool. Oh, that's excellent. I'm not going to move from this, uh, <laughs> from that webpage right now. Until <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> you might be waiting a little bit. I'm just going to be in the back. It. 
I'm just going to be in the back of the suburban. It's fine. <laughs> what are you doing, <laughs> Shannon? <laughs> I'm waiting for the moon. You're not looking out the window? No. Duh. Forget looking no. out the window. I got something better. See, this is exactly what we do, Ben, though, because like John and I have meteorology backgrounds and every time it rains or does anything, we don't look outside. We, we get on the radar. So right. that's how this okay. works. <laughs> well, and it's also abbreviated EPIC, which is a great instrument. Abbreviation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was not going to use that word because I, I hate that word, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So discover that is a an excellent choice for a mission. Shannon, what was your first choice? I my first choice is always the Van Allen probes. Um mostly because Dr. Van Allen lived right next to my sister-in-law in Iowa City. They used to uh yeah, talk to him all the time, said he was a grumpy old man and I said, "Do you know how famous this guy is?" Right. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that was pretty cool. But, I mean, that's one because, you know, I'm really big on the magnetosphere and magnetics. So that's why I chose it. But I think you chose it too, didn't you? I, I did actually choose it as well. We made these lists independently. Uh, yes. So th- th- these are... <laughs> but this is not surprising. <laughs> no, but these are relatively recent spacecraft. So they were launched in uh, August of 2012. And... Venturing into Ben's territory a little bit, uh, they're actually spin-stabilized, right? Well, I mean, a, a lot of things are spin-stabilized, but yes. Yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> so, a... Sorry, I guess I shouldn't be discounting your, your one attempt to reach out and bring me into the conversation. <laughs> well, I always think that's kind of a, uh, a blunt method of stabilization, but it is efficient. Yeah. <laughs> And so these things are cruising around, and they are measuring these charged particle belts, which there's an inner and an outer belt, and telling us about their evolution. In fact, they even discovered with these that at one point there was a third belt that made itself evident for just a few weeks and then went away. So the Van Allen belts are much more active and dynamic than we thought. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the part that I think is pretty cool, because I... I think that was something we thought we had a handle on pretty well, right? And then maybe not. Yeah, so maybe maybe not so much. And these are going to continue mm-hmm, their mission yeah. for quite a while. Like I said, they're relatively new spacecraft. I'm not sure when the official end of mission date is planned right now. But spacecraft like this, it's not uncommon for it to be extended out to 15 or 20 years. Yeah. Though... I don't know. These They have to operate in a pretty nasty environment. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we shut down satellites to protect them mm-hmm. from <laughs> these charged particle clouds, uh, these things have to keep measuring. Okay. Well, um, that was mine, and I guess John had that same one. Um, ben, yeah, okay. you're next. Um, so I have a second one, and it's Gravity Probe B. Um, and... Uh, this is this is a physics experiment, not a, a geoscience experiment, but um, it is a physics experiment that uses the Earth as a major component. So I think it counts. Um, so I, I I don't think that I am the right person to explain um, uh, general relativity general re- relativity. Uh, mostly because I, I don't understand it at all. But um, Gravity Probe B was studying two, uh, two relativistic effects. Um, one is called the, the geodetic effect, 
Um, and basically the idea is that um, space is curved around big objects. Um, well, I mean around any object with mass, but specifically you have these big curvatures around things like planets. And, and we know that that's the case um, because, you know, things orbit the earth that's due to the curving of space time. Uh, but what's really cool is that, um, within those regions of curved space, you have, um, any vectors that move through them, uh, basically get perturbed. Um, and so you can think about it as, um, the, the shape of space around the earth is like a well, right? It, it curves down to a very low point in the middle. Um, and it's it's curved at the edges, um, like like one of those wishing wells in a in a mall. <clears throat> but if you were to approximate it as a as a simple cone instead of something that's curved, uh, you make cones by taking a circular piece of paper and then cutting a pie slice out and then taping the edges together, right? Um, and so the idea is that closer to the center, you lose less paper than you do on the outside of it. Um, and so if you think about the curvature of space around a planet, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a differential um, between the upper and lower parts of your spacecraft. Um, and so Gravity Probe B was able to measure this effect um, by basically having four gyroscopes. Um, and in the notes, I've written four quantum mechanical gyroscopes. um and basically the quantum mechanics are really simple it's just they use superconductors to generate um uh, spinning uh superconductors to generate electric fields that you can monitor their orientation that's as as spooky as it gets um but basically they had these four spheres of fused quartz with a thin layer of a niobium superconductor inside of them and they're very special um because they are about the size of a ping pong ball and they are only out of sphericality. Is that a word? Sphericality by 40 atoms. They're only out of round by 40 atoms for something the size of a ping pong ball. Wow. Um, at, yeah, it's insane. At the time they were the roundest things that humanity had ever built. Um, <laughs> and um, so th- the future is cool. Is all I have to <laughs> say about that. Uh, <laughs> are you sure it wasn't 39 Adam? <laughs> don't make me count again i swear um but and, and then if that's not cool enough they they soaked these things um in super fluidic helium uh to make the superconductors be superconductive um so yeah uh the future is awesome Um, But anyway, by spinning (laughs) these guys, um, they're able to stay accurate to within half of a milliarc second per year, which, yeah, exactly. It's like forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so they're able to compare the spin of these gyroscopes to a star. And um, by going around the Earth, you know, for a certain amount of time, you're able to watch these things drift as they're pushed through curved space around the earth. Um, and what's really insane is that their measurements were so accurate that they actually had to take into account the movement of the guide star that they were comparing to. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Does that not make your head hurt? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so so they measured uh, the geodetic effect, and they also measured frame dragging, which is basically the same thing as the geodetic effect, except it's caused not just by a static body, but a body that's spinning. And so the the really bizarre, mind-blowing general relativity thing here is that if you have a ballerina spinning as they orbit a black hole if they spread their arms out on earth they would slow down right um because they're increasing the moment of inertia but near a black hole because black holes are spinning so fast um the arm that's closer to the black hole is actually frame shifted um the the so weird um the the curvature of space-time is is being twisted around and so um there's this gradient across their body so the the one arm that's towards uh the black hole will actually be accelerated spinward and the arm that is away from the black hole will be accelerated anti-spinward and so if you're close enough to a black hole and you do this experiment where you spread your arms out while you're spinning you can actually spin faster as you pick up momentum from the black hole yeah exactly that was exactly my response as well (laughs) I, I, I venture into uncertain territory here, but this sort of sounds like you could think of it as a, a solid body rotation type thing, even though it's not really what we're looking at, but to see why you might get a, a higher surface speed. That, that's Well, and what's crazy that is, is that mind blowing. this is one type of frame dragging, rotational frame dragging. You can also have linear and um, oh. I think expansionary frame dragging, um, but I think those two are, are both pretty... Uh, pretty theoretical but anyway so the the reason that i i take time to describe these two effects is because they measured both of them and they didn't measure both of them added together they measured them separately and that's because their effects on a gyroscope are at right angles to each other oh (laughs) isn't that cool that just happens to work out yeah that's amazingly cool actually (laughs) Um. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my next satellite measures rainfall. Um, <laughs> call it quantum rainfall. <laughs> Nobody knows that what quantum right. means anyway. It it is water in packets. It is therefore quantum. <laughs> Quantized. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know how we can follow that up because that is a very technologically advanced satellite, and it blows my yeah. mind that we have the. Uh, the technology to measure that. And I also love the idea of using the earth and other solar system bodies as like masses in a giant physics experiment. Yeah. Well, well, Hey, so, so let me bore you for a second longer. Actually, um, when they discovered or when they theorized, um, the geodetic effect, it it was theorized in 1916, uh, by a Dutch physicist named Willem de Sitter. And he actually, um, calculated the geodetic effect on the moon, uh, from the earth. And so his predictions were actually corrections to the moon's predicted orbit, um, which is using the earth and the moon instead of the earth and a tiny satellite. In yeah, the year after uh, general relativity was was published, but forty years before Planck <laughs> established as a wow, process. Wow! Yep. <laughs> that's 
that's yeah. impressive. I never thought about that. See, this is really weird to me. Yeah, see, it's weird to me because, you know, you say none of the stuff does Earth things, but it's like, I feel like there's still so much stuff. Like, we knew that in 1916, and it's mm-hmm. correct, but we didn't know what made lithospheric plates move. Yeah. That's crazy on our and, own and earth, you know, like you could, like, ty- I mean, you can derive uh, plate tectonics from basic physics. You just need really good modeling. Right. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Well, see, Model. that's uh, geology coming into the age of uh, <laughs> mathematical modeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Boy, aren't you guys excited for the day when <laughs> you can be completely replaced by a computer? Ooh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have brought that one up. Jeez. Well, you know, I mean, I, I will be happy to be programming that computer. Um. And Shannon, what are you going to be doing? I'm going to be in a hole dug that I've dug out with all my bean cans. Okay? She's down there licking rocks. I'm still, I'm still worth it. Exactly. <laughs> you can't lick this rock computer. <laughs> Your halite sensors aren't as good as mine. <laughs> uh, I will say that I did eat three rocks in the field today because the only way to tell the difference between mudstone and siltstone is to put them in your mouth and feel the grittiness or not grittiness. So, you know, do that, Mac book. <laughs> well, this is very similar to the early process of uh, relativity discovery. When you <laughs> put some space time in your mouth and see if Swish. It you gotta You got to swish it around. <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder why geology and was get... so much later with plate tectonics. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, well, I think uh maybe we'll move on. So Shannon, what's your next mission? Uh, well, you know, I picked uh, this trim, the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission, mostly because people that I know work mm. with the data. That's really about it. Um, and so <laughs> this was a joint mission between NASA and the Pan Aerospace Exploration Agency, right? And so it's it's a weather and climate research satellite. Uh, it, it's old. <laughs> it was launched in November of 1997, right, with a design lifetime mm-hmm. of three years, Right. But it went for a long time, like almost 20 years, which is always what you want out of your spacecraft. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Uh always really nice to find a spacecraft that lived for a lot longer than it was supposed to. And you can just go like, ooh, bonus science. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, it's all free. It's the Mark Watney effect. Um, (laughs) 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 This is really cool because it looked at. You know, tropical rainfall and lightning and stuff, but we don't, it seems like there's still so much we don't know about how storms initiate. And so it led to a lot of study about storm initiation and how that happens. And it it even went further than that, right? It looked at a whole bunch of, you could study the amount of rainfall in these storms, you know, where they moved and... Like I said, those really, the tropical cyclone initiation points. What what does that look like from space? What's actually happening in the atmosphere to get this stuff started? Yeah, and it did that in three dimensions, too. Like, this isn't just, like, what storms look like from space. Right, which almost anything right. can take a picture right. of. So it looks like that this mission actually used 
uh, a combination of visible and infrared imagery, which isn't anything all that new, but also microwave and radar imagery. So taking sort of the, the normal earthbound radar approach, but downward looking instead of outward looking. Right. I mean, we do that on lots of spacecraft, right? Right. I don't know how many are actually designed specifically for precipitation. Of course, you can have different frequencies that you yeah. use for the radar. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, this was a, uh, a re- relatively pivotal mission in terms of understanding tropical cyclogenesis. Yeah. That's yeah. a big word for you. <laughs> now to set for a second and count syllables. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, John, what was your next fave? I mean, you work on satellite data, right? It's true. So we'll actually get to those as the my last pick, but my absolute favorite mission of all time, one that I was excited about from when I first heard about it before it launched uh, until its recent end of life was GRACE, which is the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. Yeah, that was actually going to be my first pick until I saw that you had already gotten it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see ben you did want to do something i that tried was <laughs> i tried so hard john just took it away from me i had to do physics <laughs> come on oh, oh no <laughs> so these were two satellites actually a pair of identical satellites that followed each other around with uh, a distance between them of neighborhood 220 kilometers and they were actually called Tom and Jerry colloquially. <laughs> Tom's always chasing Jerry, uh-huh. and the satellites perpetually chased each other, sometimes getting closer and sometimes getting further apart, which is the whole crux of how they worked. So these satellites would follow each other around, and they had a microwave system going between them that would very precisely measure the distance between them. In fact, it could measure the distance to within about 10 microns or so over that huge hundreds of kilometers, which is crazy. That's far less than a human hair. I mean, I was going to be impressed with that, but Ben already talked about, you know, that gravity probe being which is more impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Your 10 microns is like, it might as well be 10 kilometers. It's fine. Man, you're sounding like a geophysicist now. So. I know. I know. There's there's too many batteries in the office. They're affecting my brain. So what would happen is th- these were trying to map gravitational anomalies to get Shannon's absolute favorite object ever, the geoid. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Do not want. So, if these spacecraft were coming towards a gravitational high, the first spacecraft would accelerate some, so the distance between them would increase. As it went past the high, it would again decelerate back to its original speed, and the second spacecraft would then begin accelerating as it approached it. So by measuring the distance between these two spacecraft, we could get a map of gravity that represented things like ocean level, and we could use that to derive ocean bottom pressure, which is just as important to oceanographers as atmospheric pressure is to meteorologists. It all works the same way. It's just slightly more viscous and less compressible. Uh, Then we could also, once we remove that signal, measure geologically interesting things like glacial isostatic rebound. And since this mission operated from 2002 to 2017, we were actually able to watch you know, Greenland lose mass and isostatic rebound happen over that 15-year operational period. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah, and the maps, I mean, you would get a monthly gravity anomaly map, so a new geoid every month. That sounds like the worst <laughs> thing ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to see how that thing's deforming. It's already creepy enough. <laughs> so, Ben, I'm curious, what would have made you pick this first as well? What, what about this mission intrigue? Well, you? well, it's, I mean, it's the whole, like, physics doing geology thing, right? Um, being able to measure things without having to bounce particles off of them is really amazing. Um, uh, you know, by using gravity to, um, to infer things about the world under you, like, um, uh, the Lisa, uh, gravity telescope also fascinates me. Although I guess LIGO is also okay. It, it exists, but it's on the ground. So whatever, um, <laughs> Where, where they're, you know, using gravity to look at things very, very far away. This is using gravity to look at things very close, but like, it, it's like x-ray vision, but, you know, on crack, like, and the fact that they did it, like you said, with, with two orbiting bodies, I mean, it's just classy. It is. It's a really cool experiment, and it is the first Earth-observing mission that had no radiator mm. type measurement instruments mm -hmm. uh, other than, you know, the antenna they used to send the data back down. So yeah, I, I thought it was a really, really cool experiment. And I got to see some of the data from this uh, working with the Penn state ice group when I was at Penn state, watch them uh, process this and do things like estimates of the fact that Greenland was losing you know, like 280 gigatons of ice per year. <clears throat> Which is an incredible, yeah, that sucks. Incredible amount of ice, yes. Again, yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> there's not going to be much left yeah. after that. So I'm sure you've heard about Grace FO, right? So that's the the Grace follow on mission. Yep. Yeah, they're they're like using uh, lasers, right? Um, the original Grace was was microwave ranging, right? Yes, it was microwave radio. Yeah, so so they're using lasers, which are inherently cooler. Um, and it's launching, uh, hopefully by the time this episode goes out, it will have been up in the sky for like almost a month. Um, but it's, it's hopefully, I think it's launching tomorrow as we record this. Oh, there you go. Well, we, we've had good luck with the solar system series. Tess launched the day after we recorded that show. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep, exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, so, Shannon, what was your next pick? Well, I guess my next one was this one that I just sort of was browsing through and looked at uh, Tara. Um, again, I picked this one because that's one of my good friends' <laughs> name. But <laughs> this, <laughs> this thing's a monster. It does a lot of stuff, right? I mean, it's got a lot of instruments on it. So, Tara, obviously, this is an Earth-looking thing with lots of radiative instruments on it. Um, and it's got five main ones. A lot of them are radiometers that are looking at different thermal emissions, um, which makes for some really cool volcanic pictures. Mm. Um, and then there is the Ceres instrument, which studies the clouds on Earth. And I'm always really interested in this, just because I'm not very good at radiation and climate. And so it interests me. 
that's how I work. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and so this is looking at balancing Earth's heat budget and the energy budget. And this obviously has a lot to do with climate models that we're going to make and then use that to see what Earth's past climate was. Um, so that's kind of one of my favorite instruments on there. But it also has a multi-angle imaging spectroradiometer. Obviously, um, these things do really cool when you're looking at hurricanes, all different kinds of stuff that are floating in the atmosphere. Um, then it has MODIS, which is a moderate resolution imaging spectroradiometer. And you can look at everything with that, right? Ocean, atmosphere, ice, land. Um, you've worked a lot with that kind of stuff, John, right? Yeah, yeah. I've done some work with MODIS data looking for uh, wildfires specifically. Hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. We've had a lot of those around here. And then finally, it has um, Moppet, <laughs> <laughs> measurement of pollution in the troposphere, <laughs> which is obviously very uh, important now, but that's actually one I don't know a lot about. But you can also look at wildfire stuff with that, too, because um, if you're putting any mm -hmm. kind of aerosols up in the air, Moppet's going to find it. So... So, Ben, this is where you guys definitely have the advantage in uh, show terms of you have the best acronyms and the best <laughs> names for things. Whereas in geology, uh, our names are really pretty boring most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is well, way cooler, I will say. We've got a lot of really long words, but acronyms Well, I mean, Aster and Ceres are definitely offset by Moppet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. That's so... I didn't even want to say it, but yeah. You know somebody jolted up in bed at two in the morning one night and wrote that down. Oh, you know what? It gets even worse, actually. One of the um, one of the things I was thinking about doing instead was rapid scat, which is uh, um, an experiment on the International Space Station. But I think that's absolutely the worst name of all time. <laughs> I just... Oh, I just... I saw a lot of rapid scat today in the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also the uh, the very early to fail soil moisture active passive satellite referred to as SMAP. SMAP? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think SMAP is okay, though. Is it... I think that's okay. You're like that rapid scat. I love yeah, it. That's really good. So I, it's really... <laughs> it's really ridiculous that like the fate of your entire science experiment rests on your acronym. Well, and so with the the last satellite on the list, I've actually drowned in some acronym soup on it <laughs> because it it is the, the Go series <laughs> of satellites, which we have multiple ground stations for here in Boulder. Mm. We receive, reformat, repackage that data, and ship it out to all of our university partners at work. So they're are all kinds of, you know, it's the GRB that goes rebroadcast and it comes in on NOAA port, which is another acronym for something. And there are an absolutely absurd number of acronyms to keep up with, but GOES is, I would say maybe the longest running satellite series, mm -hmm. though I couldn't find anything to back that up firmly. So the, yeah, well, brag. my ad hoc <laughs> knowledge also uh, confirms that. So you're good to go. All right. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Nothing but professionals here. <laughs> so GOES-1 was launched in 1974. And we recently just launched GOES-17. 
Uh, so there have been quite a few of these. They've obviously gotten much better as time goes on. Yes. Many more instruments. Uh, but these are geostationary operational environmental satellites. And so as their name implies, they're geostationary. They look at Earth. They're heavily used by the National Weather Service as well as the Met Service of Canada to monitor our atmosphere and use it for atmospheric prediction. And they now have quite a few sensors. The, uh, the Advanced Baseline Imager, ABI, on GOES-16 that is now active and operational is uh, a 16-band multispectral mm. imager. It's really a, an amazing instrument. We can get full-disc scans every few minutes and mesoscale sector scans that follow storms every 30 seconds. What does mesoscale mean? So mesoscale... Medium... Oh, go ahead, Shannon. No, sorry. No, I was going to be obnoxious. You go. <laughs> so mesoscale is below the synoptic scale, which would be sort of large-scale weather patterns, uh, but not down to the storm scale. Okay. So it's the, the region where storms are happening. So maybe okay. a region around a dry line. Uh, there are a number of these across the U.S. that the satellite has predefined. Somebody, I don't know who, maybe somebody in a basement with a joystick, uh, but somebody steers the mesoscale sectors on the GOES satellites, and they follow interesting weather or go to places they're needed. Uh, So, for example, following Hurricane Irma, last hurricane season was what one of the mesoscale sectors was tasked with. And being able to get these, you know, basically one kilometer images in 16 bands every 30 seconds is amazing. Oh, now mm-hmm. that's a lot of data, man. Uh, we're looking, <laughs> once we reproject it and package it up in a nice compressed net CDF file, uh, 350 to 400 gigs a day from that satellite mm. alone. From one satellite? <laughs> from one satellite. Wow. And that is not saving raw products. That is processed. Right, on-board processing, oh right? Uh, a lot of it's ground-based. Oh, really? Oh, so you're getting even more of that data. Wow. So we get uh, we have, I believe, four dishes right now that are working, uh, but one of them that's pointing towards GOES-16, uh, we get a, a constant feed from that. It's the raw imagery. We have to pull that in, uh, reproject it, and then repackage it. <clears throat> How cold is that <laughs> server room, man? Uh, it's pretty cold, and there's a lot of servers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's impressive. So w- we don't actually keep more than about 30 days of that data on hand. After that, it gets shoved into Amazon I cold storage. Mm. I can't even believe you can keep 30. That's that's really impressive. So e- each one of those servers has 24 disks. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are two wow. GOES satellites... Usually, right? There, there's two of them, one on each side of the Earth? Uh, no, so there's a goes east and a goes west, generally. Uh, one monitors east coast, one monitors west coast. So they're, they're just in two slightly different longitude slots. Oh, oh so this is all uh, like America-centric then? Yes. Oh, okay. It is, it's, all, it's all for <laughs> NOAA, so it is very North America-centric. Oh, yeah, of course it's NOAA. Okay. Um, they do... Sometimes when they have older satellites that they retire, they'll move one to like a, a Central South America position or a Caribbean position. Donate them to a third world country. Here yeah, you it, c- it will live out its useful life there, sending data back. You can you can go look for uh, for incoming storms that'll completely obliterate your economy. Here you go. Just take this old satellite. Exactly. Don't thank <laughs> we us. We don't need it anymore. 
Well, and wow. One of them, I believe it might have been the satellite that used to be in Go's Central America slot. Uh, they, when they run out of fuel, eventually, because these geostationary satellites have to use fuel to keep directly over the equator, uh, they'll start drifting and get a little bit of inclination. And so they trace out this really narrow north-south figure eight mm-hmm. in the sky. And so we actually had to modify one of the satellite dishes here uh, with a uh-huh. custom homemade bracket to track this satellite uh, and keep feeding data. Uh, wow. The, the oldest one I know of that was still being used, <clears throat> GOES-3, was still used up until 2016. Wow. Uh, and it was it was out of fuel. It was wobbling all over the place. Its orbit was absolutely absurd. Uh, but it was actually used for communications with the South Pole. Mm. So it was a, it was a, it was a handy space repeater. Well, before the show gets too terribly long, I think we should probably wrap it up and move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. So, Shannon, this is what happens when you let me pick the fun paper. Yeah, this isn't even cool. I don't even understand this one at all. I I thought three pages. It's got this great title, The Complexity of Songs by Donald Knuth. This will be great. And then I lost it about two two paragraphs in when I had to look up at least four words. (laughs) (laughs) So this is is the Donald Knuth of the... uh, computer science world fame creator of latex and much much more oh oh i see so this is uh, pages from your bible i understand (laughs) Uh now (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so i i I described Uh, this paper to my wife who has a master's in musical performance (laughs) and she said in music we have words for this (laughs) don't math before you get too far can i just quote from this real quick Oh, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) uh, So it starts out, consider the following schema. And then I'm going to jump down. It says where W sub one equals chick. W sub two equals quack. W sub three (laughs) equals gobble. (laughs) W sub K equals oink. Oh my gosh. What the heck is this? I'm I'm staring at this paper and I have no idea what I'm looking at. So (laughs) this is... Uh, are, are either of you familiar with big O notation in terms of algorithmic efficiency? Yeah, sure. No. I'm going to say yes, because that could lead to a fun <laughs> so, conversation. Oh, oh, so Ben's smarter. <laughs> no, I have okay. no idea what he just said. So it's, it's this idea of, let's say I have some black box that I'm putting numbers in. I'm going to crank the handle on it. And if I put 10 numbers in, it takes 10 seconds to run. And if I put 100 numbers in, it takes 100 seconds to run. That is a linear scaling of the problem. But there are some algorithms where if I put, if I double the number of items that I put in for the algorithm process, maybe it takes the square of that time to run or the cube. You know? mm-hmm. So it's algorithmic efficiency. How, how, does, how do things scale up or down? Okay. Uh, yeah. And computer scientists out there that are shuddering, I apologize for glossing <laughs> over lots of fun stuff in there. Uh, but, but the initial premise of this is let's say you have a song of length N. It doesn't matter what N is in units. It could be bars. It could be syllables. It could be notes. It could be seconds. It doesn't matter. 
uh, that means you need text of approximately length in as well to go with that song, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's a lot to remember. So <laughs> we had this bright idea many, many, many years ago to have verses in a chorus or a refrain. This, yeah, this reduces sense. the amount that you need to remember. And so you now have a song mm -hmm. of length in, but you don't have in words or in seconds of unique wordage. You now have a chorus that repeats. That whole first page is deriving the expression for how many words or seconds of text you would need to go with that song. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. Great. Well, then the next example is now we're going to the complexity of square root of n. So if you've got, you know, four, then now you, you only have two in terms of complexity, whatever you're measuring that in. Uh, these would be songs that have, say it has five verses. So you sing the first verse, and then you sing the second verse and the first verse, and then you sing the third verse, the second verse, and the first verse with a chorus in between each of those sets. So now your, your mm -hmm. song is very long, but you don't have very many unique verses or wordage to remember for that length. Right, exactly. You've just got these little things like, you know, chickens quack and ducks hurt. <laughs> nope, that's not what you want. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, you know, turkeys gobble, and then the next verse is cows moo. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you gotcha. go back through them. Yeah. And then you sing the chorus in between. Mm -hmm. So something like what Ben was alluding to of Old MacDonald. Yeah. Mathematical uh, Old MacDonald. <laughs> Mathematical Old MacDonald, yes. It's terrible. <laughs> and I love how he says, therefore, if McDonald's farm animals ultimately have long names, they should make slightly shorter noises to keep with the schema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, otherwise you have the wrong number of syllables, right? Exactly. Exactly. Which is important. So <laughs> only a mathematician or computer scientist could state this as given positive integers, alta and lambda, there exists a song whose complexity is 20 plus lambda plus alpha times the square root of n over 30 plus two lambda order one. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know why you're, Can we just I don't know why you're having a hard time already? keeping up with this. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it just keeps going down this, how far can we simplify songs rabbit hole? And you, you get to things like the 12 days of Christmas, which then you get to one on root login. Because then you've got 12 drummers drumming and so on. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I, the simplest is going to be the bottles of beer on the wall, right? Uh, no, <laughs> I, he does talk about the bottles of beer on the wall song. It's, it's login. Uh-huh, yeah. And I love that he says, it was J.W. Blatt of Milwaukee, yep. Wisconsin, who first discovered a class of song known as M. Bottles of Beer on the Wall. <laughs> because where else? Uh, oh, my gosh. Oh, well, not only that, again, only a mathematician would not say 99 bottles of beer on the wall. They would say, well, it could be any number. It's M. Bottles of Beer on the Wall. <laughs> Depends on how much you want your family members on this particular car trip to hate you. Right. Exactly. So That's M plus one. So again, then theorem one, there exists a song of complexity order login. Okay. 
proof. Consider the schema. And then <laughs> about eight lines later, we prove the complexity of the beer on the wall song. But then there is an even simpler class. It would be order of one, meaning that no matter how many data points you put into the song, how long the song is, it never gets more complex. Ever. <laughs> this would be a perfect algorithm, mm -hmm. right? I could give it 10 things right, to sort, yeah. or I could give it 1 million things to sort, and it takes the exact same amount of time. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what was this magical song? I'm sorry. I love it. This is great. Is this the Casey and the Sunshine yes, Band? Yes, this is where Casey and the Sunshine Band is the proof of the theorem. And that's the last time that uh, sentence will ever be said. Continue, please. <laughs> that's the way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I like it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> which is expressed as B being the verse, sub K being which verse you're on. That's the way union with I like it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh no so actually u is the chorus here which is uh-huh uh-huh and then v yeah. would be the verse so yeah. that's the way chorus uh-huh uh-huh i like it uh-huh uh -huh. repeat for all k order one the simplest <laughs> possible song uh this is this is so paper. stupid like i can't believe <laughs> like is. i opened this up and i was like oh now i gotta look at math and like yeah, John, as you stepped us through it, I was like, okay, all right, all right, I see what's going on. I hate it, and I love it at the same time. <laughs> I yep, can't tell if exactly. I hate this paper or if exactly. I hate myself. Yeah, yeah, both of those things for me, yeah. I, I do thoroughly love that the uh, that last theorem is motivated by, however, the advent of modern drugs has led to demands for still less memory, and the ultimate improvement of theorem one has just been announced. <laughs> Uh, yep. Again, usurping my favorite line, right? Like every every time we do this, there's a better line. Yeah. So this paper from 1984, math, <laughs> as my wife says, mathing her music. Oh, yeah. Keep that thing away from me. <laughs> well, oh. if you have discovered the order of complexity of your favorite song... <laughs> Or think that you can beat order one in terms of song simplicity. We would love to hear your attempts. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Uh, you can also find our Patreon page if you would like to pay for more ridiculous fun papers. <laughs> That's patreon.com at don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Do, 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 do. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers.